Please remain standing for the reading of the Old Testament, and this will also be our sermon text this morning. Psalm 119, verses 129 through 144. Psalm 119, verses 129 through 144. Hear the word of God. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Sends our reading from the Old Testament. Let's pray. Well, we turn this morning to... Uh, two uh, more stanzas uh, in Psalm 119. Uh, some of you will know I have over the last uh, uh, few years been uh, preaching gradually through uh, Psalm 119, and uh, we're over uh, three-quarters of the way through it now. And uh, we turned this morning to the uh, Pei and Saudi uh, stanzas. Now, uh, for those of you familiar with Psalm 119, even at a very uh, a surface level, you will know that uh, this is a psalm that focuses on the word of God. Uh, that this psalm uses a number of different words for God's word uh, and uh, exalts God's word in so many ways. And yet there's a lot else going on in this psalm as well. As this psalmist invites us into his own spiritual experience, uh, as he recounts to us how he was a great sinner, how he has repented, how he has been restored into God's favor, and also how he is a sojourner, one who has apparently been uh, expelled from God's promised land and is living, living as a sojourner amidst many enemies, amidst many who hate him, and as he continues to go through many troubles and afflictions in life. And as we read this psalm, even as New Covenant Christians... We see so much of ourselves. We certainly ought to see so much of ourselves in this psalm and in this psalmist. We who are sinners, great sinners, who have repented, who have been restored to God's favor, and yet live as sojourners in this world. 
in the midst of many sufferings, in the midst of many people who are the enemies of our God and of the faith. Now, as we look at these stanzas, one of the things that that stands out, that really should strike us as we read them, uh, are uh, three emotional, passionate responses that the psalmist expresses here towards God's word. As he speaks about God's word, as he speaks about various aspects of God's word, he describes three of these responses, which I'll refer to as emotional or passionate. The, the three of them are these. Longing. Sorrow. And zeal. Now, in a way, it's it's difficult to know how to preach these things. It's, it's one thing to tell people what to do. It's another thing to tell people what emotions that they ought to have. And yet, this psalm reminds us that when God speaks to us in his word, when God himself confronts us and acts towards us and interprets that in his word, it ought not to leave us unmoved. We can hardly be confronted by God's word and to respond to it properly uh, without being moved with the sort of longing and sorrow and zeal that is described here in these stanzas. And so let us consider what the psalmist has and let us pray that the Lord would indeed stir us, stir up in us the proper response to his word that the psalmist lays before us here. We'll look first at verses 129 through 131. Now, the psalmist begins with this great statement in 129, where he says, Your testimonies are wonderful. And it's important to, uh, to recognize right, right off the bat that uh, the psalmist is not saying... Uh, God's word is wonderful in the sense that it is, uh, it's quite good. And sometimes we use this term wonderful in a very mundane way. You know, we have dinner at someone's house and we say, well, that meal was wonderful. And what we mean was that was, it was good. Um, the psalmist is not saying, oh Lord, uh, your testimonies are quite good. What the psalmist is literally saying to us is, Lord, your word is full of wonders. Wonders are your word, O Lord. This is this idea of wonders is something which the Psalms and elsewhere in scriptures ascribe to the work of God generally. God alone does wonderful works. God alone does wonders. You've read about that in the scriptures. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them. The Lord brought his people out of Egypt. The Lord sent his own son in human flesh and blood and raised him from the dead. The Lord does wonders. And the psalmist is telling us that God's word is also full of wonders. The word which tells us of these, of these works that God has done, the word that tells us of God himself, it is a wonderful word. And we can understand how the psalmist can immediately say, then, therefore, my soul keeps them, these testimonies of God. If God's word is full of wonders, then 
Surely we wish our lives to be conformed to that word. And how perfectly it follows that the psalmist says next in verse 130, the unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. You see, God's word is full of wonders, but it is, these are not wonders that we admire from a distance. These are wonders that draw near to us. These are wonders that shape us. And one of the things that God's wonderful word does is it, it gives understanding. It gives wisdom to those who hear it, to those who ponder it, to those who believe it. This word, unfolding of God's word, that is a fine translation. We might also, we might also put it in terms of the opening of God's word. This is what the psalmist is describing. God's word, the opening of God's word gives light. Sometimes we speak about opening God's word. We might mean it very literally. You know, we open God's word. If we're going to read it, if it's going to be preached, it has to be opened. But we also use this term uh, figuratively, metaphorically, too. You might hear a powerful sermon or you might hear a good lecture on the scriptures and say, God's word was really opened for us. And the psalmist is saying when God's word is opened, it gives light. It is like being in a dark room, and all of a sudden the curtains are opened, and light floods into the room. Our hearts and our minds are naturally full of darkness. We are an ignorant people by nature. But God's word, when it is opened, it brings understanding. It brings light. The psalmist says here, the second part of 130, it imparts understanding to the simple the simple is, uh, you might remember the simple person from, if you've read the Proverbs. In Proverbs, the simple person is one who, well, he's not wise, but he's not exactly foolish either. The simple is someone who is, he's young, he's immature, he has so much to learn, he's inexperienced. He could go either way in his life. It is God's word which brings understanding to the one who is simple. To those of us, all of us, who are still on the way, who are still learning. And it's in this light that we find in verse 131 the first of these three great emotions or passion that the psalmist expresses in response to God's word. He says in 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. You almost wonder if the psalmist has no shame. Opening your mouth and panting, it's like you're portraying yourself as an animal. But it gets the point across. In response to God's word should come a great longing. A longing that matches the longing for food that a hungry person has. The longing for drink that a very thirsty, dehydrated person has. God's word is amazing. It is full of wonders. It imparts understanding. How can we not long for it, to be filled by it? The hungry person, a growing body needs nourishment, physical nourishment from food and drink. 
we who are growing spiritually, we who are simple people who need to grow in wisdom, we need spiritual nourishment. And the scriptures provide that that, uh, that spiritual nourishment we need. It's worth just thinking for a moment about this imagery of God's word. In fact, God himself, God's grace, uh, coming to us and being our food and drink. Just uh, uh, several stanzas earlier, the Mem stanza uh, in Psalm 119. One of the things that stands out about that stanza, especially verses 98 through 100, is how God's word brings understanding and wisdom. Sounds like what we just saw. And then later in that stanza, in verse 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If God's word imparts this understanding and wisdom, how, how sweet it is to take it in, to be nourished by it. Psalm 81, verse 10 tells us, God says in Psalm 81, verse 10, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness before God in his word and his grace. We long, we ought to long as one uh, who is spiritually hungry and thirsty, as one who recognizes our great need to be built up and to be edified. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle uh, tells us something along these lines. Maybe we don't like to think of ourselves as so needy. Maybe we like to think of ourselves as mature adults, mature spiritual adults, who are sort of beyond this need for being treated like the simple. And yet 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, says to us as new covenant Christians, like newborn infants, that puts us in our place, doesn't it? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to open our mouths and to taste that good word of God, that wondrous word of God, And may we pray that the Lord would give us a true longing to be filled and nourished by that. Well, that brings us to the second uh, of of these passions or emotions that uh, we read about. And this, we find in this section, verses 132 uh, to 136, which is the rest of the pay uh, uh, stanza. Now, these next verses, these next these are five verses we're going to consider next. The first four of these verses uh, present a series of requests to God. So, one of the things that Psalm 119 does in some of its verses is to offer prayers, brief prayers to God. And we find one prayer after another to God in verses 132 to 135. And in a way, this makes sense, given what we've just seen. As the psalmist has, really, he has humbled himself. He's confessed his, his hunger and his thirst 
Uh, he's portrayed himself almost like an animal uh, who is longing for nourishment. And that alerts him to the need to, to ask help from God. He expresses his neediness with these series of prayers. Now, let's consider briefly these, uh, these four verses and the requests that he offers. The first thing he says, verse 132, it's very simple in a way. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. He's simply asking for God to pay attention to him and be gracious. And yet notice what he says in the second part of this verse. As is your way with those who love your name. Now you might wonder, uh, where is the word for God's word in this verse? We don't expect to read any verse of Psalm 119 and not find a reference to God's word. Well, this word that is translated way is one of the common words that's used in Psalm 119 for God's word. It would be ordinarily translated God, a rule or judgment. And perhaps that, that helps us to see what the psalmist is getting at here. He's saying that basically God's being, God's turning and being gracious to those who love him. It's, It's God's rule or judgment for himself. Maybe we might say this is God's policy. What's God's policy towards the people who love him? He turns to them and is gracious to them. That should be a great encouragement to us. That is truly God's way with his people. You might think of the way Paul put it in Romans 8.28 for those of us who are new covenant people. He says that all things work for the good are those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. If you love the Lord, God's policy towards you is all grace. He's constantly turning towards you to be gracious to you and to work everything out for your good. And then the next verse, 133. Here he says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Here the psalmist recognizes, uh, you might say, an internal problem, an internal hindrance to living well, and that is our own sin. That we are a people who are prone to stumble in our steps. We are a people who are prone to let sin get the better of us, to exercise dominion over us. And so the psalmist prays that the Lord would help him, would strengthen him internally. And this, too, might remind us of Paul's uh, Paul's teaching in Romans. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that for us who are justified... Those who by faith have been made right with God. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. And sin will not lord it over us any longer. He doesn't say we won't still sin. He doesn't say we won't still struggle with sin. But he says sin is no longer our master. Here the psalmist is praying for what God has promised to do 
That's a wonderful way to pray, isn't it? Sometimes we pray for things that God has not promised. We pray that our friend would recover from his cancer. We pray for many things, and we have to say, if it be your will, O Lord. And it's fine to pray that way. When you pray, like the psalmist, let no iniquity get dominion over me. You don't have to pray, if it be your will. Because we know it is. He's told us it is his will. It is his promise to us. And so we pray, expecting the Lord to answer, to be gracious to us when sin fights against us and seeks to lord it over us. And then verse 134, the third verse in which he offers these prayers, he says, Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. You see, the psalmist is very thorough here. It's not The psalmist recognizes that the problems in life, the prob, our, our struggles in life, are not just within. It's not just our own sinfulness. It's also troubles from without. There are evil people in this world who seek to lead us astray, who seek to deceive us, who seek to lure us into sin. So he's asking for God to, re, to rescue him, to release him from those who would seek uh, to, who, to lord it over him. He doesn't just want sin not to lord it over, but evil people not to lord it over him. And finally, the fourth of these verses that make these prayers to God, he says in verse 136, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Perhaps there's uh, another common verse in Scripture that this uh, might remind you of. Let your face shine upon your servant. It sounds like the blessing that God gave to the priests in Numbers chapter 6, that they might bless the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make your face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's a wonderful way to end a worship service to receive that blessing from God in which he turns his face and it shines upon us. And it's a wonderful way to close these series of four verses. The last of these requests is that God would make his face shine upon the psalmist. And so the psalmist has laid forth these four uh, verses of requests, really beautiful requests with many Many promises of God built into these requests. And then he comes at the very end of this stanza, verse 136, to set before us the second of these passionate responses, these emotional responses. And it is sorrow. And that might surprise us. We might not expect that the psalmist would express great sorrow, after making these great requests for God's grace with such great expectation for God's answering him. And yet, this is precisely what he does. He says in 136, My my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. So the psalmist has made these requests, but you see what's going on. 
people don't keep God's word. They don't keep his law. And it is filling the psalmist with sorrow. Now, as we try to understand what he's saying here, we might just recognize for a moment that the psalmist actually doesn't tell us who it is who is not keeping his law. Our translation says, people do not keep your law. That's pretty generic. There actually is no subject in the Hebrew. It's left, it's left unclear. Who are these people? Who is the they who is not keeping his law? It could be the enemies of God. I mean, he mentions the enemies a couple of verses earlier. He'll mention God's enemies uh, a few verses later. But the fact that he leaves, the psalmist leaves it unclear who these people are, it might make us, it might suggest that it's more than just the enemies of God. Perhaps it's God's own people. Perhaps the psalmist is even including himself in this general verdict that people do not keep God's law. We can sort of see where the psalmist is going here. God is so gracious. God's policy towards those who love him is that he turn to them and be gracious, that he turn his face upon them and shine upon them. And yet, how do God's people respond, let alone other people? Respond so often with sin, so often with rebellion, so often turning a deaf ear to this word that God has given to us. How tragic it is that God's old covenant people rebelled against him again and again and again. The psalmist here sort of sounds like Paul in Romans 9, beginning of Romans 9. Paul is talking about Israel. He said he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish about their rebellion against God in his day, about their refusing to believe in the coming Messiah. And brothers and sisters, if it was, well, it was tragic, certainly, for those old covenant people to rebel. But we recognize, in a way, how much more tragic, how much more sorrowful it is when God's new covenant church, who has seen so many more of God's wonders, who has experienced so much more of God's grace, who has seen God's face shine even more brightly than the old covenant people did, when we are unfaithful to our God, when we as the church do things that bring shame on the name of Christ before the world, when we wander from the way. And the question comes to us, do we really feel sorrow about that? You'll notice that the the psalmist is not saying, oh, it's too bad. Too bad when people don't keep God's word, even as people. No. There are a lot of things that we say, oh, it's too bad, right? We hear, we hear bad news about things that happen far away. We recognize that it's sad, but it doesn't really move us because we don't know these people. It's on the other side of the world. Notice how the psalmist describes himself. I mean, he says here, my eyes, my eyes shed streams of water. Right? I mean, his, his tears are like a river. He is genuinely moved with sorrow by the fact 
that people disobey God's word, including his people, probably including himself. We are called to be a people of joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And yet within the call to be joyful, there is a place for genuine sorrow over sin. Sorrow for our own sins and sorrow for the sins of the world and for the sins of the church. Where does our sorrow lead? In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That is where it ought to lead. Let us pray that the Lord, even in the midst of our joy in Christ, would give us a genuine, deep sorrow over sin. And let us pray that it would lead not to a permanent grief, not to a a disabling kind of grief, but to a repentance, a repentance that is pleasing to the Lord. And that brings us to the third of these great passions or emotions that the psalmist expresses in our text this morning. And here we turn to the second of our two stanzas, the Zadi stanza, which we will look at more briefly than the first stanza. Now, as I read the Saudi stanza earlier, this is verses 137 through 144, you might have noticed how many times you heard the words righteousness or righteous or right. And that's because, well, the psalmist does use uh, this, a, a couple of related Hebrew words over and over here. And the reason he does this uh, just to pause for a moment, uh, as many of you will know, uh, these these stanzas are associated, each of them, with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so in this uh, Saudi stanza, each of these verses begins with a word that begins with the letter Tzadi. Right? And the Hebrew words for righteous or righteousness begins with this letter. And so this is something that the psalmist does in some of these stanzas. He will focus on a particular word or word group and keep emphasizing this. And this is what he does here. You might think of this as the righteousness stanza. And you can see in these opening couple of verses, 137, 138, uh, that the psalmist says that God is righteous, God's rules are right, and God's, the, God's appointing his testimonies. You might say his, his legislating, his law-giving is done in righteousness. And so the psalmist hits us right off the bat here in this stanza with the idea that everything about God is righteous. Whatever he does is righteous. And what this is basically getting at is just that God is perfectly just. God is perfectly equitable. God is upright in everything he does. There's nothing about God or what he does that you can look at and he say, there, there's something wrong with that. There's something out of whack with that. There's something that doesn't conform to what is good. Everything is right about God and what he does. And this leads the psalmist in 139, verse 139, to... Uh, to uh, express this third 
emotion or passion. He says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. The psalmist is filled with zeal as he contemplates the righteousness of God and the fact that his foes, his enemies, forget this word of God. Perhaps you can see what is going on in the psalmist's mind. God is righteous. Everything he does is right, and yet this world is full of people who are opposed to God, who are God's enemies and the enemies of his people. There's a clash. There's something fundamentally that doesn't fit together in this world. A perfectly righteous God and a world full of unrighteousness. Full of enemies of what is right. And it arouses a response in the psalmist, a response of zeal. He is zealous in response to this situation. What is he getting at? Well, one thing that is important to recognize is that God is a God of zeal. God is zealous for making right in this world what is wrong. We find, for example, uh, just looking in the book of Isaiah, we find a number of examples of this. Where in Isaiah 9, for example, when God promises this coming Messiah he is going to bring, and Isaiah, as Isaiah is talking about this, he says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Saving his people is not on God's to-do list. That he's procrastinating for a day and he's not too busy. God is zealous to save his people. We find it later in Isaiah, where the prophet talks about God. God, show your zeal in saving your people from their enemies. And we, as we read earlier in the service from John, chap, uh, John chapter 2, when our Lord Jesus came to carry out his redemptive work, zeal consumed him. Zeal for God's house consumed him. And it's a way of saying more generally that zeal to complete the work that God had given him Zeal to complete his mission consumed our Lord Jesus. And here the psalmist reminds us that as God is zealous for what is right, as God is zealous to save his people, so we, his saved people, are to be zealous. We are to live with a reflection of that zeal of our God. We cannot, we ought not contemplate God's righteousness and to contemplate the brokenness of this world, and feel as though it's some ho-hum manner, matter. Something maybe to give attention to someday. No, it should arouse our zeal. And brothers and sisters, how much more for us under the new covenant? I call you back one more time to the book of Romans. After Paul's main opening section of Romans, where he talks about the sin of the human race and the judgment of God, which is coming against it, this great problem that we find ourselves in as a human race, in Romans 3.21, as Paul begins that next section of Romans in which he lays out the doctrine of salvation so clearly, so beautifully, he begins by saying, the righteousness of God has been revealed. 
apart from the law, received by faith. Brothers and sisters, you in these last days have seen the righteousness of God revealed in a way that far outstrips anything this psalmist has ever seen. You, it has been presented to you, the coming of Christ, his perfectly righteous life, his righteousness imputed to you by faith. God's own justice and equity revealed so beautifully. Brothers and sisters, how can you hear this gospel message and not be filled with a zeal for God and his work? How shall we be zealous in response to God and his righteousness? Believe the gospel. Don't just acknowledge it as true. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest on him. Find your refuge in him. And do everything you can to promote that gospel. Pray for the spread of the gospel. Support the spread of the gospel with your words and with your life. May you honor the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look forward to that day. Pray for that coming day when our Lord Jesus will come again and judge the world in righteousness. Let us pray that we are zealous for the Lord's work and for his righteousness, as the psalmist expresses here. Well, this stanza, this uh, text before us, uh, comes to a conclusion with verses 140 through 144, and I just point out a couple of matters in closing. You will see in these closing verses that the psalmist, again, uh, re-emphasizes the righteousness of God and his word uh, a number more times. And yet, notice that while the psalmist speaks of God's word, God's promise, verse 140, as well-tried, it's like it's refined. It's like a precious metal refined in the fire. God's word is well-tried. And yet, what does he say about himself? Verse 141, I am small and despised. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out. You see that the psalmist is not, he doesn't think that his own zeal is going to bring about what is right in this world. It is God and his word that will accomplish this work. God's word is strong. God's word is pure. Even while he himself, even while we are weak and our lives are full of trouble and anguish. And so the psalmist so wonderfully concludes in verse 143 by taking delight in God's word. And in 144, by asking for understanding, which is right where we began uh, in uh, our text. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in the righteousness of God. Let us pray for zeal as we contemplate the revelation of God's righteousness. But let us remember that it is God himself and not we who will bring about the making of all things right in God's good time. Let us pray.